Hot for TV. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Doctor Who 2 Hot for TV where I'm joined by Sam Molesky. Sam, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Good to hear. So before we kind of get into what we're talking about today, I just wanted to know a little bit about your relationship with Doctor Who and how you first discovered it. So first thing first, I'm French, so I didn't discover it until way later in life than most people, I assume. Because when I grew up, a few people did catch it on television during the Russell T. Davis era. I heard a few people in like, uh, you know, the playground when I was like in middle school talking about it. So I was like vaguely aware that it existed, but I never actually watched it. And I actually got into it through Sherlock, which is okay. weird weird to say, and it's a, in the year of old Lord 2020, it's a bit cringe to admit it, but you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I love that, because Doctor Who kind of wasn't advertised very much or very well on French television, but Sherlock was, and other people watched it. And I did, and I thought it was, like, in 2010, 2012, and I really liked it. And uh, at one point, I didn't have any other shows to watch. Like, in 2014, I was about to get, like, my equivalent of the A-levels. And um, I... Oh, that dude, Stephen Moffat, also worked on this show, Doctor Who. Sounds fun, sounds kind of British, looks a bit like the the Avengers. Uh, my mother was a huge fan of the Avengers growing up, so I had a lot of like Avengers. Are we talking the Avengers, the cult British series, oh, yeah, as opposed yeah, yeah, to yeah, yeah, you uh, know. Marvel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, John Steed, uh, Emma Peel, yeah. that kind of stuff. Uh, the, the, the superior one, you know. <laughs> I basically just bought the DVD set for the new series, and I watched through it, and I got caught up for series eight and Peter Capaldi's debut. And afterwards, because I was starting to uh, get into uh, uni and academia and uh, hating it, having a very miserable time, uh, so I kind of started to uh, write academic stuff about Doctor Who as sort of a way to do academia in a way that didn't make me want to die. (laughs) And it started that way and it ended up with me having a blog and writing books about Doctor Who, which is, you know, and, you know, having my my entire friend circle now being people I met through Doctor Who, which is very nice, and I'm very happy about it, but I'm a nerd. Aren't we all? Aren't we all? So just tell the people a little bit about your blog and indeed um, your book Sheffield Steel and anything else that you want to plug. Around uh, 2016, I kind of started blogging about Doctor Who. I did it on my personal blog first. And then around 2017, uh, with a couple of friends, um, uh, Andrew Davis and uh, Kevin Bernard, who uh, people might know as uh, Script Scribbles on Twitter, we decided that it would be nice to have kind of a place to put our common blogging and just have like a, you know, a, a, a nice sort of left-wing little blog sphere that different people can just contribute to and because we all came from the same fan community and that fan community was kind of hijacked by a lot of not too nice people. The, the whole thing, and I'm not going to go into details because it's really, really weird and 
Okay. Really odd. Uh, it's just it involves uh, a weird white nationalist guy and a lot oh, of Kickstarter shenanigans. It's it's a whole thing. But anyway, so that community was like not exactly a place anyone wanted to hang out. So we kind of all had a little discuss uh, server, uh, which we called downtime because wasn't actually supposed to be a Doctor Who reference, we realized it was one accidentally, and then Amazing. we decided to make a, a blog that was kind of an offshoot of that community, and which was also called Downtime. And it's still up, uh, neither Andrew nor Kevin blog regularly on it, because, you know, they have lives and uh, careers <laughs> and stuff. But uh, given that I'm, uh, I don't have much going on in my life, so I can keep on blogging, and I do. Most notably, I've done a sort of, you know, sort of like review analysis of uh, every Whitaker episode as it went up, which people seem to quite like, and I ended up uh, collecting those into a book. Uh, which is called Sheffield Steel, a second surgeon's doctor. It came out in um, late last year uh, from Arc Beetle Press, which is uh, owned by my uh, pal James Wilder. And uh, yeah, you know, for a very niche book about <laughs> left-wing Doctor Who analysis, I think it worked pretty well and people seem to like it, so I'm, I'm pretty happy with that. Since apparently uh, the fact that I wrote a whole book about Chris Chibnall uh, seemed to impress some people who thought that well, there's not much to say. <laughs> uh, I ended up getting another gig to write, write books about Chris Chibnall because I uh, did uh, a black archive for of his books, uh, which is you know, there's a series about sort of like academic analysis of individual Doctor Who episodes. I'm doing one on Eric Ned in the UK. Brilliant. I mean, for anybody that hasn't checked out that range, they should really give it a give it a look. It is one of the most exciting things I think to happen to Doctor Who. Sort of fan publishing in a very very long time. I I hoover up those books and they're they're so insightful, but you can get through them in like less than a day, and they're just they're, they're perfect travel reading. I think, and they're just they're just a fantastic range. Uh, if you ever want recommendation, you really should get the one on Love and Monsters, and I'm not saying that because it's written by my best friend, but <laughs> also, yes. But also, it's really, really good, so you should. It, it, it's fantastic. I've actually just read that one. Um, I think I'm up to number 40 now, and I think the range is on about number 45 or something, so uh, I'm, I'm slowly but surely catching up there. I've been reading them too, but no, much more slowly. I'm only on 21 right now. Uh, so what was your first kind of exposure to the wider world, Doctor Who beyond the TV show in terms of like fandom? Was it an online community? Or how, how, when did you discover that there was this kind of rich... Uh, fan base behind it. I was on Tumblr for a bit, uh, kind of didn't really use it a lot, but I I read other people's stuff there, so I knew of like, you know, sort of all the Expanded Universe fandoms that you had on here. Yeah. I was very intimidated by it, because it, it, it seemed very <laughs> impenetrable. And I ended up uh, kind of getting into Big Finish proper. Uh, well, because my friend Kevin, who was very, very into Big Finish and had listened to like basically everything, kind of uh, encouraged me to, to do it. Right. Basically, uh, 2017 was a really, really bad year for me for a lot of personal reasons. So I kind of ended up listening compulsively to it, and I'm now at a stage where I've basically listened 
too big finish. Like, to all of it. <laughs> wow, that's that's an impressive feat. All the Doctor Who stuff. Like, basically. Right. Like, there's a couple holes here and there. But, like, yeah. 95-96%, basically. What is it that appeals to you about this extended universe, particularly the Big Finish stuff? Like, what what exactly is the appeal there beyond the TV show? I think, actually, different corners of the expanded universe have very different sort of appeals to them, because... You don't necessarily listen to something by Big Finish to get the same kind of experience than, I don't know, you have by reading Faction Paradox. Mm-hmm. Like, through that kind of extreme cases. But I think Big Finish um, has gone through a lot of different iterations kind of throughout the year, depending on the kind of people you had in charge of the different ranges and stuff. Yeah. Uh, I think they started kind of a lot more in that, you know, experimental wilderness years sort of bubble uh, especially when uh, Gary Russell was still in charge of the monthly range and that kind of stuff where you know it's kind of remembered as a bit like the glory days of of the company because at the time you had Rob Sherman like uh, doing all of his stuff and you know Doctor Who and the Pirates uh, the Chimes of Midnight yeah. so, you know, the big classics and I think they moved away from that and got into directions that's kind of a lot more fan service And I'm not saying that in a yeah. bad way, Zelly, because I think that can be done very well. And it's very interesting. It's very interesting. It's kind of an art of giving people more of what they want, but in a way that's kind of interesting and that can, kind of, well, you know, expand on things instead of just being a copy. And... Yeah. Sometimes they can struggle a bit with that, but I mm. think that when they get it right, you kind of have this feel of almost discovering, you know, lost episodes of the show that slot really well into what yeah. you already know, which kind of give you, you know, more details and a bit of a you kind of free experience things, but a different angle, and it's kind of. Really, you know, warm and fuzzy and really nice. And, you know, it's kind of difficult alchemy to get exactly right. But I think that when it's done right, it can be, you know, just reconforting. And there's a reason why that is popular, you know. They come under quite a bit of criticism for a lot of reasons. And, you know, some of those are a bit, a bit spurious. That was really kind of valid. But... I think there's a reason why, you know, they're still popular, they're still making content, and people are still buying the content, uh, which is that, you know, it's fun. <laughs> it is. It is a lot of fun. And I think that change in direction was a lot down to Doctor Who, the TV series, coming back as well. Whereas before the TV series came back, it was very much, we are the only new Doctor Who in a way. I know there was comics and books, but in terms of with actors, it seemed like the most sort of accessible thing for fans. And then when Doctor Who came back, the range became very much right. We have to appeal to perhaps the people that like classic Doctor Who more and perhaps aren't into this new iteration of Doctor Who. So that's when I think it became more fan servicey. Yeah, and I think what this started to do, like in the most recent year, is really kind of starting to kind of, you know, merge new and classic in sort of new mm-hmm. and interesting ways. And I think it's pretty exciting, and I'm actually really looking forward to what they're going to do from now on. 
um, you know, they've got their um, new series with Paul McGann, uh, Stranded, which came out, uh, yeah, last month, which is obviously with a past Doctor and all that, but also is set in 2020 and kind of embraces a very modern kind of drama and positions itself as a very modern kind of pre Doctor Who. And so, so yeah, it's pretty exciting and I'm very curious to see where it goes. So today you've done us a top five of sort of underrated big finish Doctor Who releases, some of which I'd heard before, some of which I hadn't. So I've had a lot of fun re-listening to them. Number five was Vienna Retribution. So before this, I wasn't too familiar with the character of Vienna. So could you explain to the listeners who she is? Well, Vienna is kind of a spin-off of Doctor Who that's barely a spin-off. Like it, it really stretches that the definition. Because uh, Vienna was um, a one-off character that appeared in one of Big Finish's uh, monthly stories. Uh, that story was called The Shadow Heart by Jonathan Morris. Um, it was pretty, pretty good, pretty decent. You know, not like, an all-time classic, but it's good fun. And um, turns out that this character got the whole spin-off to herself. Uh, the big reason why is probably uh, because she's played by a very talented actress, uh, Chase Masterson who was in, uh, most notably, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, uh, which, to my great shame, I haven't seen uh, yet. It's on the list. I'll get to it one day. Well, you can't consume everything, especially if you're doing all of Big Finish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 it does take time. <laughs> but yes, so uh, her character uh, is kind of this uh, glamorous sort of space uh, assassin. Her spin-off kind of went into this direction where uh, every season, there's been four of them, uh, Retribution is sort of the fourth one, where every season kind of has her drop into this sort of weird uh, cyberpunk environments, and each episode is sort of this game that the writers come up with to have as many weird concepts and outrageous plot twists in the frame of one hour as they can. Yeah. Like, the character is very fun. Uh, it's not only something you listen to for, like, deep character development, but the character is very fun and very energetic and kind of, you know, carries you through these big sort of plot puzzle boxes, which just get really, really insane and very conceptually daring and often are very political in really interesting yeah. ways. Um, it's very anti-capitalistic uh, range, um, very angry with a lot of stuff. There's uh, a great one at one point, which is basically um, Donald Trump in space fighting a giant opera house. Uh, <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, it's 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 great. I really really like the series, and all the people have listened to it, um, which is you know understandable because you don't really have like a tangible who connection, but it's really really good and really underrated. And I think that if there's one kind of like a weird, not very well-known Big Finish Doctor Who spin-off you should go listen to. That one is a pretty good one to do. It's a very compelling character, I think. It's a character with a lot of depths, and it's... I was just really surprised, having never heard this range before. I can't believe how much I enjoyed it. It was just like... It was, it was a breath of fresh air, really, because it's quite... It's quite 2000 AD, like the 2000 AD range that Big Finish did and things like that, and I just really sunk into the universe in a way that I didn't expect to. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, the character was kind of thin before that, and that last box that they did, Retribution, kind of gives her, I think, a lot more character stuff to do, because essentially uh, the plot revolves around her being accused of the murder of uh, an innocent woman and sent to prison, and there's a lot of very interesting stuff about how she manages, you know, her guilt, um, over because she might be, you know, an ex-assassin, now sort of, you know, a sort of private detective, slash maybe also a bit assassin, that's kind of ambiguous, uh, what her job description exactly entails at this point, but she used to kill people for business and kind of went out of that line of work and now it's brought back in and have kind of dealt through pretty complex feelings about that while mm-hmm. being put in the middle of a really conceptually interesting sort of space prison plot. Yeah. Which, because uh, the prison she ends up in is basically modelled uh, upon Dante's Inferno. Where as you get closer, as you go down the layers of the different levels of the prison, you get nearer to the core, which is poisoning people. Is it, that, is, that's how I read it, I think. Yeah, yeah it's, it's basically that, and it's kind of, you know, made upon of, made of these different layers where, you know, people kind of burn in, in hell for eternity, and it's really kind of grotesque and weird, and I really enjoy sort of, like, the way takes, you know, this insane aesthetic concept and you then to make some, you know, pretty strong and pretty interesting political points about the way people end up treated in prison. You know, in real life you don't have the actual fires of hell, but it's pretty bad. Yeah, and the way, uh, you know, prison like that ends up being a business and ends up being tied into a lot of um, capitalist interests, uh, which the episode delves a lot in, you know, the whole sort of privatization of the prison system and stuff like that. And it does it really, really well. Uh, it's pretty long uh, audio because it's, you know, it's uh, a whole full set, so there's like three one-hour episodes. But it's just so well-structured and it has twists for days and kind of always keeps you guessing and always finds a way to kind of jump to another plot track or reveal something you didn't expect to and it's just it's just really really good i love it a lot it's it's great and there's some great supporting cast and characters in it you have annette badland shows up in it i think yeah she um, plays um she plays a, a, a sort of a lesbian mob boss which is yes. on a on, on on the prison and she's really really delightful in this what what i love about the characters in the prison is they're the sort of characters that only you only find in doctor who in that they're kind of they 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 seem like they're painted as sort of real people in a almost like a soapy kind of way but then they've all got these disgustingly twisted dark pasts and of course they're not just normal twists of like oh it's a killer or whatever it's a cannibal that wants to that needs to taste every part of the human body and it's it's grotesque but i think the beauty of it is these characters are also really really likable and very very human yeah it kind of it kind of goes into like completely gonzo places as far as the Doctor Who aesthetics and just, you know, general weird sci-fi camp goes, but it dealt that to kind of 
circle back to sort of very human and very real and very political problems and I really like how it does that. I think it finds a really good way to kind of anchor its camp excesses into, yeah. you know, really, really alive and really raw stuff and it's it's great. It's great audio. I love it a lot. Too, 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 too hot for TV. At number four, we've got one from the Lost Stories range, which is The Queen of Time, which is a second Doctor Zoe and Jamie story that was uh, intended for TV originally, but was dropped from production. It was adapted by Catherine Harvey from a script by Brian Hales. Now, before we get into that, what do you think of Brian Hales's other contributions to Doctor Who? I'm still working my way through the classics, so I haven't uh, gotten through any of the Ice Warrior stuff. I have seen Celestial Toy Maker, though, which honestly I don't think is as bad as its reputation. Interesting. <laughs> I, I, if, I don't know, it, it's, I, w- I wouldn't call it great, but I thought it was, you know, it was, was alright. Yeah. It's pretty racist. Like, it yes. is. I think there's no denying that. But, but I um... mean, it's not even the most racist story of the Hartnell years. Like, not, like, <laughs> by, by far, that's way worse. I mean, you know, you've got, like, the Crusade, like, the season before, yeah. and that is so much worse. But, I, mean, I don't know, I think it kind of got its reputation as, you know, as this irredeemably awful story because it's mostly missing and uh i think it's kind of very visual script you know in the bits that actually do exist that we do see kind of have this very like colorful sort of childlike aesthetic for it and i think it being missing kind of tanked any chance it had of ever being appreciated by people because its strengths are very visual uh, but I don't think that, like, as sort of, you know, a big, colourful little TV episode for children, it's all that bad, you know. Ob- obviously, it would be much better with other races. But I, I generally kind of really like the back half of uh, of season three of Classic Doctor Who. I think, I think Dodo Chaplet is a great companion. Um, yeah, I think she's great. I don't understand the the. Ha- I think the hatred or the dislike or the overlook of her comes from the fact that most of her stories are missing. Even stuff like the gunfighters, like it's been sort of redeemed lately, but for a very long time, people really hated the gunfighters, and I think Celestial Filmmaker kind of gets a bit of the same sort of stuff, uh, where it gets disliked a lot for being, you know, it's it's very very childish. Like it's it's yeah. it, it's mm, Doctor Who always was a bit childish, but you know, you've got some pretty adult stuff, and you've got stuff that's very clearly for little kids. And I've tended to note that episodes of television that I like, episodes of Doctor Who that I like, aimed at the younger audiences, tend to generally get really, really hated by the rest of the fandom. Yeah. Like, fear her in uh, New Who. Yeah. Like I don't think Fear Her is bad, like on a script. No, level, I it's, don't. Yeah, it's it's basic, it's not a great script, but it it's uh, it's basically a Sarah Jane Adventures episode. And on Zerf's term, it's not bad. And I remember Matt Graham, uh, the guy who wrote it, saying that like, yeah, people hated it, but he got plenty of um of, you know, mail from like little kids who said they love it, so he was like, eh, course, fine, yeah, I'm, I'm happy with that, you know. But I think Doctor Who fans, 
often get into Doctor Who as a child, but then as an adult, any time it's childish, they kind of it's irredeemable in their eyes, which I think is a really peculiar thing for a family show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know. In the forest of the night. Is I love that episode. I think it's really magical and people hate it but i bet there are kids watching that who will that will sit in their memories for years and years like classic fans remember the one with the maggots and things like that yeah exactly to circle back to uh the episode in question uh, the queen of time isn't very childish uh, so you know it's pretty it's pretty normal sort of doctor who tone but I really like it, and I think it get kind of it gets kind of overlooked uh, in the Lost Stories range because you have a lot of um, very big, important uh, Lost scripts in there. Uh, most notably, mm-hmm. I, I'm thinking about you know the Maurice Farry ones, uh, Farewell Great Macedon, The Fragile, yeah. and The Lock of Fragrance, which you know, are some of the best Doctor Who ever made. So yeah, yes, it's easy to get overshadowed uh, when when you have that right next to you but yeah but uh the queen of time kind of gets overlooked in comparison to this one and i think it's a shame because i really like it uh it kind of gets to a lot of the really fun stuff that there was in the celestial toy maker you know this idea of um, a weird magical realm um that kind of alters and changes and you get the main characters trapped in it and, uh, you know, takes it into a context that is kind of removed from all the Celestial Toymaker's worst implications uh, yeah. in terms of, you know, race and gender dynamics and whatever. Because um, the basic pitch of the Queen of Time, it's, it's basically the Celestial Toymaker, except it's the Celestial Toymaker's sister, who's the villain, who's uh, this sort of um, extra-dimensional entity called Hecuba. And uh, basically what you get is, um, yeah, it's the Celestial Toymaker's basic plot, but played in the mode of the Mind Robber, which I mm-hmm. think is a really, really good mix and works really, really well with Trojan. Probably better than with Hartnell, because I think that with William Hartnell, kind of had an awkwardness in how you make him fit with certain kinds of plot. And, you know, in the... The Doctor Toymaker, he spends like four episodes playing Jenga, so... <laughs> yeah, I I really, really enjoyed this. And I think, like you say, it is basically the Celestial Toymaker, but with time. But I, yeah, Troughton's Doctor just seems to have so much more fun with it. I know, obviously, it's actually Fraser Hines playing the role. What do you think of Fraser's uh, second Doctor uh, impersonation? I, I kind of tend to really like uh, when they get old companions to do the voices. Because it doesn't, you know, it doesn't necessarily always work as like you know an impression, like in the technical sense of the of the term. I don't know. I don't think, for instance, you know, Caroline Ford does a very good heart now. But because they knew the actors and worked with them, you kind of get, you know, you you get sort of the essence of the performance, the spirit of the performance. They kind of get sort of like the warmth and humanity and the little personal touches of the performance yeah. really well, um, which I think you can see especially well when it's um, uh, Katie Manning doing uh, doing John Pertwee, uh, which she did for like a few few companion chronicles and yeah. stuff like that, and I think she's she does does him like wonderfully, um, but here. 
um, yeah, here and in the many audios in which he's played and trotted, I think Fraser Pines is really, really good, and I really like yeah. him. Yeah, he's, he's, he's great. Do you think it um, captures the feel of 60s Doctor Who? I think it's interesting, because... I think it's one of those audios, um, those little stories that really get why you'd want to, you know, to remake the scripts today. Because mm-hmm. I think that sometimes um, the lost stories can be a bit frustrating in how, you know, they recreate the script as it was originally conceived, even if the script was shelved for good reasons. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the most notable ones was um, the one they did last year of The Ultimate Evil by uh, Wally Wally Cadelli, which I don't think was an especially well-liked story. It was adapted uh, as um, a Target novelization, I think, at one point. And I don't think it got, like, rave reviews or anything. And the sort of, like, adaptation of it kind of firmly anchors it in the Colin Baker TV era instead of, you know, maybe kind of smoothing things over a bit and maybe putting it a bit more in sort of the big finish, more more complex, more interesting things, Doctor. And, you know, and I think it's really interesting to kind of take um, a past story and show how it's influenced the show now, how it's still relevant today, uh, you know, sometimes it's really easy to do that because, you know, when you have the Maurice Ferry stories, uh, they're amazing. They're some of the best who ever made. So, you know, not much work had to be done there. Uh, but, you know, stuff like The Elite, I think, does a really good job at kind of pointing out how that stuff that was written uh, in the 80s can still be relevant today in terms of politics and in terms of plot and character development, and I think the Queen of Time doesn't necessarily do that, because um, 60s Who tends to be maybe a bit sparse on, like, uh, the character development front, not all the time, but it's not necessarily a priority. But it really works in terms of aesthetics, because it takes a story that was, like, Imogen in the, in the 60s, but uses the fact that it's rewriting in the 2010s to kind of, I think, up the scope of it a lot. And, you know, because it's also audio and they don't have to take into account the budget and the very real technical limitations that they had in the 60s, you know, in terms of sets, even so, you know, 60s who has some amazing sets, but that's not the point. But, you know, they can really sort of, like, get completely wild with the imagery and there's a lot of just wonderful bits of sort of audio description and, you know, gorgeous bit of characters wandering in supernatural landscapes and yes, strange vistas and there's the dangers that they face are really, really weird and it's all really, really cool and engaging and visual in a really nice way and especially um, given that lost stories can be very, very long because they adapt very faithfully the pacing of all the serials. Um, you've got a few of those that run up to three hours, three hours and 30 minutes, um, which is really long. I, 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 it's probably too long for me. But um, uh, this one, I think, clocks in at two hours, two hours and a half or something like that. And it's just really well-paced and keeps you engaged all the time with 
kind of weirdness, cool concept that constantly throws at you. And I think it's a really good time, and not one I see discussed a lot, so I just wanted to plug it a bit. And I really liked what Kathleen Harvey did um, in, in other stories. I think it's a, it's a bit of a shame she hasn't uh, written anything for Big Finish since, because yeah, she she that uh, that was a bit strange. I thought she just she kind of disappeared a little bit, but just, like it was it was a great adaptation, and you could certainly feel a lot of her in it, not just Brian Hales. She did sort of like short stories for kind of Big Finish's yeah. uh, anthology releases, but the ones she did were all really good, and I have really nice memories of them. Um, the one she did for the um, 1001 Nights release. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of this anthology, but her part in it is really, really good. And yeah, it's a, she, she's, I think, a pretty underrated writer. And I've kind of tried to sort of like plug some very underrated female writers that did Big Finish in this list. You absolutely haven't, quite rightly so. The third one we come to is part of the Doctor Who Unbound range. It was kind of like a a what-if premise to the Unbound range. Each one had a different premise. And the one we're looking at here is A Storm of Angels, which is a sequel to Old Mortality, which features an alternative version of the first Doctor played by uh, Geoffrey Bailden. First off, I think this is the most interesting range Big Finish has done. Is it a, is the range as a whole a particular favourite of yours? It's really interesting. Um, I'm, kind of, um, I'm kind of sad they never did anything else with it. Uh, I think it was partly because there were some right issues uh, in terms of the region of Doctor Who, and they didn't want like too many like alternative Doctors when they were, when the BBC was trying you know to promote the show. Uh, but you know, with um, the timeless children and what happened the last season Doctor Who, maybe they'll they'll mellow a bit on that, and I would certainly love to see more because they were all really interesting and kind of offer you. Like huge diversity uh, in terms of story can kind of really show you the ways you can sort of twist Doctor Who and yeah, it's really fascinating range. I don't love everything in it. Uh, I think there's a yeah. couple. I think there's a couple. I, I don't want to say duds, but there's a couple ones I just don't really like. But even though I don't like, I think I'm really interesting and worthwhile. Even when the range kind of stumbles a bit, it, it, its mistakes tend to be in that sort of idea where, you know, you still have something cool that you haven't seen before, even if it's a bit problematic or not as good as it could be. Uh, which is not a problem a Storm of Angels has at all. No, not at all. It's it's really good. It's one of my favorite Big Finish stories, like... Yeah, like possibly like top ten contenders. I I love it, a huge, huge lot. Uh, it's by Mark Platt, which uh, is not an underrated female writer. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but um, you know, wrote Ghostlight uh, for the classic series, and then did some uh, very infamous books for the Wilderness Years, uh, most notably Lung Barrow. Wish I own. Yeah, I've got a copy somewhere as well. It's uh, it it's an interesting take on the Doctor Who mythos, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, this I think is the best audio he's done for Big Finish. He's done a lot of those. Sometimes really good. Uh, sometimes not so great. Uh, I think he has a bit of a fascination sometimes with um, 
sort of, you know, East Asian aesthetics and, or, you know, generally Asian aesthetics and mysticism. And mm. it can come off in some really rough ways. Uh, if you've ever listened to his uh, Jagan Lightfoot episode, which is called The Case of the Gluttonous Guru. I don't know whether I've heard that one. Uh, yeah, well, if you ever heard that one, you, you'll know what I'm talking about. It's, um, okay. it's, it's, it's an interesting experience. I'll, I'll just mm. put it like that. But, um, but he can, when he's good, he's very good. And I think he's one of the best writers they have at sort of capturing the feeling of 60s Doctor Who. Uh, yeah. His Hartnell historicals are just always really good. Even when they're technically, you know, n- not especially dramatically interesting, I still love listening to them because they're really, just, they're just so cozy. Because you have like two hours and like this very rich uh, historical landscape of characters just having, you know, pretty low stakes generally adventures. And I just find it really enjoyable. Um, with this particular story, it kind of has the scope and in a way naivety of 60s Doctor Who, that sort of we can do anything. They're not thinking about budget in the work like in the 60s they you know they do the web planet which anybody you would get that script now and go how the hell do we achieve it um and it's full of exciting ideas like it's got creatures made of gems and it's francis drake in space i just i love that world but at the same time the the kind of beats of the storytelling are still very modern yeah it's a, i think it's a fascinating story because it does have all of platt's love for 60s doctor who and this is gorgeously realized world. But it's also because it's an unknown story that's, you know, a big what if. And it's also an interrogation of a lot of that. And I think it's really cool to see Platt, who's someone who very much uh, has issues there, trying to sort of make a critique of Doctor Who on almost in you know, a colonialist terms. Which is something that, to his credit, he it's not the only audio where he did that. Uh, he also did, um, most more recently, uh, in 2017, I think, uh, The Behemoth, which was uh, a Sixth Doctor uh, monthly range story, which is about the English slave trade. Uh, yeah, yeah, which, I heard that one. Uh, it was great. Yeah, which, you know, uh, isn't perfect, but like I very much applaud him for, you know, telling that kind of story because it's very much needed. Uh, but he, he kind of, you know, has this story that's about, um, yeah, Elizabethan explorers sailing into space or in their, you know, in their galleons to conquer other planets and other civilization in the name of Queen Elizabeth. And it's, you know, Bill's kind of wonderful because he has this ships in space and it's very beautiful, and the soundscape of the audio is just, it's amazing. I think it might be my favorite score to the finished audio. The music in it is totally wonderful. You have a lot of, like, really great sort of ethereal choirs throughout. I really love it. Even though it kind of gets into that old sort of kind of wonder, it's very critical of it, and always keeps an eye firmly on sort of um, colonial themes and the way sort of England and generally English culture has screwed other people and other civilization up. 
And it does that by tying it a lot with uh, Gallifreyan law and with the Doctor's own past. There's a lot of parallels made uh, between Queen Elizabeth and uh, Susan, who's president of Gallifrey in sort of this timeline. Yeah. And um, it's just a really, really good, layered, complex script. And I think it's just very beautiful. I think Platt, when he gets it right, kind of gets this sense of weird sort of camp poetry. The Doctor Who's really that really defines what I think is the best story is a Doctor Who can tell, and it's just really wonderful. Yeah, I I I, compl- I completely agree. It's such a vivid little world that he, he he conjures up, and also I think it helps that Susan, as played by Caroline Ford, gets to play the role sort of as, as the age she is when recording it, rather than trying to be sort of the twenty year old Susan that we're used to on the TV show. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I thought that was quite nice. I think it's probably my favorite performance mm. of hers as well. Um, I would have to think on that, but yeah, if it's not my absolute favorite, it's like, like a strong contender, which is really, really good. And she gets a lot of really interesting material, I think. Uh, her relationship with the Doctor in this story is just really fascinating, where you can have a lot more strain, maybe, than in the actual show. There's also a lot of love and tenderness, and it's just a really fascinating world uh, to, to spend time in. And you, know, you almost feel like the two hours are, are too short. I wouldn't have minded if we had more of kind of, uh, of kind of this doctor and his companions because I just think it's it's really. I agree. Great. I would have. I would happily listen to a box set with Jeffrey Belden as the Doctor. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us. Um, what do you think of his performance? I really like it. I think it's a really good sort of parallel version of one um, it's because you know the first doctor is kind of a it's kind of a bit of a oddity as far as, doc- as, far as doctors go because the role as we know it ideas is kind of strange hyperactive hero figure has kind of largely been defined by Patrick Spartan yeah. And, you know, who kind of was in all the ways of first Doctor, because that was when the regeneration was established, when the Time Lords were established. Uh, whereas the first Doctor kind of exists in this sort of grey area where everything is possible. Mm-hmm. And maybe appropriately, he's also the Doctor that has been, you know, the most recast. Because you got, like, you know, uh, Richard Hundle doing him for uh, The Favour of the Five Doctors. And then you had David Bradley, um, who twice upon time and um, the big finish audios uh, with him and yeah I think this kind of this interesting quality of the first doctor because a lot of actors can kind of offer sort of alternate takes on him he's not sort of tied up in one definition one rigid definition of the doctor the way further incarnations were the character is a lot more fluid, and I think that because of that so, sort of performance you can offer um, around him are a lot more fluid and a lot more varied, uh, in a way that still feels true to sort of the idea of the character anyway. Yeah, I completely but... agree. And I think, uh, like you say, 
all the other doctors, their performance feels definitive tied to them. But with with Hart, well, with the first doctor, the, it does feel like there's three or four different iterations that uh, are all equally as valid. Yeah, absolutely, and yeah, and I really like what uh, what uh, Baildon does. I think it's uh, he, he kind of plays up a bit, sort of maybe like the family man part of of Hartnell's performance a bit. He plays him a lot more human and warm than Hartnell did because Hartnell could be very very warm, but he also had a sort of you know, aristocratic wizard yeah. aspect to him. Um, of, you know, this kind of weird, like, childlike goblin scientist mm. person, um, which who mellowed out a lot over his, over his seasons. But I think Belden does a performance that kind of takes that warmth that was already in the Hartnell's performance and kind of centers on it and makes him a lot more vulnerable and a lot more human in a lot of ways and I think it's really interesting because you don't have a lot of stories that really center on the first doctor's own feelings yeah. uh, you have you have occasional glimpses uh, you know there's a very famous scene at the end of the massacre where he kind of goes into this speech about how all his companions left him and very moving and it's one of Hartnell's best moments as a role in the station but I think it's interesting to have kind of a different take as a character that allows for a bit more introspection. And it's not something you necessarily see a lot in Big Finish, because they tend to kind of do most of the character developments with the companions. Um, you know, old companions, new companions, whatever. You In moments where you kind of dig deep into the Doctor's psyche are kind of rare, like... For instance, like I don't know, I, I couldn't tell you like of any specific audio like the seventh doctor gets like a big character defining moment. Yeah. You know, he gets a lot of good material, but character stuff specifically, it's kind of rare. Like Seventh Doctor has one big one which is Afterlife by Pi Fitton, which is wonderful. But you know, that's like one audio in like twenty years. Yeah. And uh, which is not a which is not a critique, it's just not how big finish like tell stories and they kind of really stick to the companion sort of development especially their own companions but in this sort of alternate space for storytelling they can actually do that and they embrace it a lot more and you get to see it there and I think it's just really good and really enjoyable and also really touching and thematically compelling and I love this audio a lot too, too, too Coming in at number two, uh, we go on to the monthly range, as it's known, and we've got Night Thoughts, which is a Seventh Doctor, Ace and Hex story. So it's, uh, I guess, a bit weird to put one with Seven, Ace and Hex, because they're one of the most beloved uh, Big Finish exclusive teams. And, you know, with good reason, they're a very good team. But I don't see Night Thoughts mentioned a whole lot, except in like, you know, really hardcore fan circles who like have listened to the whole super complex, super long arc with those characters several times over. Uh, it's kind of a really well hidden gem, which once again kind of makes sense given that the range is kind of dominated by 
a few huge classics that almost everyone has sort of vaguely heard of. Like, you know, if I tell you about uh, Ace and Hex, people usually are going to go, oh yeah, Life 34, with good reasons. Yeah. Life 34 is amazing. But there's a couple ones that get a lot less discussion in comparison of, you know, the big arc episodes, and that's one of those. And it's kind of a really odd story in a lot of ways. For starters, we don't know who wrote it, because uh, it's credited to Edward Young, which is a romantic poet who, okay. who's been dead for, like, a couple hundred years. So clearly he didn't write it. He wrote, I think, a book of poetry called My Thought. That's a reference to that. It's also one of the darkest and uh, most horror-driven stories that Big Finish has done, I think. And it's really odd. It's absolutely terrifying. Yeah, because it's really not a kind of tone that you see in Doctor Who, like, at all. Like, it's it's mm. complete horror movie stuff and you know they kind of occasionally dip their toe a tiny bit into it but not like that that's considerably darker than what you usually get and the tone and the plot structure feel noticeably different it's kind of like you know a, a, a peek into an alternate universe where Doctor Who is you know just a horror show instead of the weird tunnel mix that it is I just think that as f I, I'm a huge fan of horror. Like I got yeah. into writing about media and about and you know into cinema studies because I was a huge horror fan and started writing stuff about horror movies and seeing who go into the territory and doing it by all accounts really really well because it's a really good horror story just makes me really happy and. If people are into that kind of stuff, it's um, a sort of narrative that you enjoy, and it's just wonderful. And even without that, I think it does some things in really unique ways. It kind of has like very original takes on some of Doctor Who's greatest tropes and cliches. Uh, yeah, because it is essentially a base under siege story, isn't it? But yeah, you know, yeah. well, it's a cottage under siege or whatever. But it's it's telling that story that you've heard before, but just make it. But because it's such a kind of horror story this time, it feels really fresh and different. Yeah, and um, there's also the ending, which I won't spoil because there's a very nice little mystery running through, and it would be very very bad to to waste that. But the ending especially kind of feels like um, a send-off of one of Doctor Who's most tired tropes. And <laughs> yeah. I like it a lot for that. But yeah, yeah, yeah but yeah. Um, the whole cottage and the siege vibe, you know, it totally has like its roots in a lot of um, actual horror movies. But the way it sort of plays it is just really well done and really deliberate. It takes a lot of time to just set up like a really gripping, really anxiety-inducing atmosphere, and the sound design in it is just, it's wonderful. It has one of the best sort of soundscapes in Big Finish history, I think. And 
it has a lot of sort of tricks you don't necessarily see a lot in um, in other stories. Uh, I think it uses repetition a lot. Um, you have like this one sentence that keeps coming throughout the, the story um, with the doctor repeating all the time, coming to my parlor, says a spider to the fly. Yeah. And uh, the trailer for it was basically just like that sentence in a loop. It was great. So tra- the trailer is wonderful. If you ever want to be sold on the story, I would advise you to listen to the trailer because the trailer is great. I was just going to say, McCoy, um, McCoy's performance in it is fantastic. And it's a... I, I f- it feels like a natural continuation of him from season 26 just amped up a little bit but it doesn't feel like that kind of new adventures great manipulator that i think some big finish and the new adventures try and paint him as yeah definitely i think it's one of his best performance uh he does get into a bit of you know, manipulation and weirdness but he he has a lot of of sort of kindness and warms to him in this, which is really nice as a contrast to the more horrific stuff. And, you know, yeah. especially since his companions get really put through the ring in this one, mm. like, poor Ace. <laughs> like, there's a scene in particular which is really violent, like, even by early Big Finish standards. It's not the worst thing that happened to Ace in all, in all of the stories, because she she did have um she did go through Paul Cornell's The Shadow of the Scourge, and yeah, <laughs> that was that was rough. Yeah. But uh, you yeah. know it's still pretty up there, and it's uh, it's a pretty pretty gnarly. Yeah, it is. It is. And so from what I understand, this is actually a lost story, but before the lost stories range existed, like it was a pitch for season twenty seven. Apparently, I didn't know that actually. Uh, yeah, I, I can totally see though. It does. Feel like like a pretty natural fit for where the show was at this point, and I like in in a few cases there's um, you know a, a sense of we they didn't really adapt you know uh, the story so much as you know the draft like a lot of um, the stories we have like for instance for season twenty seven. Uh, you know, stuff like um, Animal, Earth Age, Thin Ice, I think was like the, the Ice Warrior one that Mark Platt was supposed yeah. to be doing. Like, we got adaptation of those in audio, but those weren't exactly like adaptation of scripts that were written for series. They were just like, you know, pitches and early drafts. I don't think there was and... ever actually any scripts written. Um, I think it was just yeah. a case of conversations and ideas whereas this, yeah, this one i don't know whether it was maybe like a cold calling script that someone just dropped on a desk and it was briefly considered but probably wasn't actually but that, that's what i understand but then i guess from there i i had no idea that the author's name was a, an affectation so i i'm really intrigued to try and find out who who wrote yeah, that i one. have absolutely no idea but in position to you know so stories that kind of feel like they were made out of pitches uh, this one just feel like so complete and so polished. Like this could have been on television. Like it probably wouldn't have been, you know, nearly as graphic as it is. But yeah. But you know, the bare bones of the story could absolutely have made it television. Like the 
quality standard for it is really high. And, and you know, and it's just also a very good sort of TARDIS team. Like, the fundamentals and using are really good because uh, the Doctor and Ace and Hex are three really good characters that really work well together. And yeah. on those foundations, it makes the pitch and like the way the story's plotted just absolutely sparkle and it's one i actually remember listening to it when it came out on cd on a discman go on a bus ride to manchester overnight and it was just like the perfect sort of uh horror story kind of listening to that just staring out at the this black motorway ahead of me yeah that must have been unsettling <laughs> Yeah, it was very unsettling. So this one is this is one of those ones that sits in my mind as like sort of a peak moment of Big Finish. Too, too, too hot for TV. So your number one underrated Big Finish is Catch Seventeen Eighty Two, which I will say is a terrible title. <laughs> Love the story. Yes, uh, the title eh, not so much. Uh, I think it's it was like my. Top picks I absolutely wanted to talk about for a lot of reasons. Um, the first one is, like, that one I actually never see mentioned, like, at all. Like, no, no, you don't uh, at all. In fact, when you said it, I knew I'd listened to it, but I couldn't tell you who the Doctor was, what it was about, um, and obviously returning to it, it felt like something I'd never heard before. Yeah, it, it, it got completely swelled by the conversation. Um, because... Like uh, Night Thoughts or Storm of Angels, you know, they're, I think, underrated and don't get maybe enough discussion in the fandom. But I've definitely heard, you know, I definitely know people who've heard it. Yeah. Who've heard them. Um, catch uh, 1782. I know two other people who've listened to it. Wow. And that's about it. It's confidential <laughs> I mean, which is I... weird because it's in the, it's in you know it's not some like deep bernie summerfield cut that they made it was in the main range like yeah it wasn't the prestige range but no one has heard it and yeah. i don't get why because i think it's pretty good and uh interestingly enough it's also by um uh, a female writer one of you know, the only female writers to do the monthly range, because, like, for the first ten years of the monthly range, you had, like, one woman, and that was wow. Jacqueline Rayner, who, you know, is one of the best Doctor Who writers there is, so... Yeah. Of course. But also, it's... Uh, it's it's been very, very, very male, and... Because I do a lot of, a sort of stats about like diversity in uh, Doctor Who media. I'm a nerd, I like stats. <laughs> like in the space between uh, 2008 and Jack Rayner's The Doomwood Curse and 2018 and Una McCormack's Red Planets, you had no woman who did like a full main range story. You had like a wow. you had like a few anthology episodes and the co-writes, but no woman with like a full, complete two-hour story, and that's absolutely shocking. Yeah, it's pretty impressive, but you know, you have, and this audio is like a really good um, demonstration of why you should have 
female writers sometimes because it's I think one of the most unique sort of stories that they've had because it's so much about female perspective and female perspective on history, on Doctor Who storytelling tropes and it does a lot of stuff that you would expect maybe like the TV show to do and a lot of things that um, Stephen Moffat kind of touched upon a bit I guess but it does so yeah. in like 2004 pretty impressive um, like essentially uh, the bare bones story is that um, the sex doctor and Mel are investigating some weird going-ons at an English estate and Mel kind of triggers some weird temporal anomaly and gets sent back in time to 1782 and she kind of uh, is welcomed in the estate by the local lord and then you have two hours of storytelling about why it would actually really, really suck to be a woman's trend in the past. <laughs> uh, which it would. It absolutely would. Uh, yeah. But, you know, it's not something that a lot of stories necessarily address. Like, I think, like, a big one that I can think of is um, Thin Ice. Uh, not the Ice Warrior ones. It's the other one in yeah. Cavalier's era. Uh, which, yeah. you know, the whole stuff with uh, Paul McKee and Bill going, you know, I'm not exactly white. And, of course, you had Rosa uh, in uh, the first season with Charlie Whittaker. But before that, like, even in the Shakespeare Code, where you have Martha showing up in uh, in London uh, in the Renaissance, uh, you've got the doctor, eh, walk like you're on the place, you know, that's all right. Yeah, which is a very white male attitude towards um, something that actually is... A, a significant issue for the companion in that case. Yeah, I mean, it was written by Gareth Roberts, so Very it makes true. sense. <laughs> but you know, it's really nice to have, like, you know, an audience that just takes sort of this problem of a companion fitting in the past and makes it like the big driver of the plot and makes it like the only thing the plot's about and just does a deep dive on it for two hours. And yeah, you know, it's not it's not like my favorite story on that list on like a pure storytelling perspective but I think it's a really unique sort of piece of like feminist Doctor Who that people do not discuss or analyze and I think it's a shame because it's really that kind of perspective that we need more of in Doctor Who yeah. and we like we've had um, more diversity uh, especially in Big Finish which has uh, started to I am more and more female writers, but even even so, Big Finish still uh, has had like maybe two non-white writers in their lineup since the beginning, and there's kind of a lack of diversity in spin-off media in general, and it's a shame because you know you really it really does benefit from this kind of perspectives, and absolutely, this is an audio that really could only exist like written by a woman who knows the kind of topics who has experience with that stuff or not that experience but who kind of but understands it and I think it's a really important thing to listen to to understand how much this kind of alternate perspectives are needed 
in Doctor Who. Oh, I, I completely agree. And it's very much, although like the story is solid, it's very much themes over over story but that that works so it's it is about the a female perspective of what it's like being stuck in the past as you say so and it desperately needs a female writer to tell that story it's also about mental health and how men don't like men of a certain age especially don't realize that they actually have significant mental health problems that they've not addressed and I think that's something that doesn't get tackled enough, especially in sort of uh, the spin-off media and especially in sort of main range Doctor Who. Yeah, and I think a lot of stories that kind of have touched upon, um, you know, sort of problematic and abusive dynamics in spin-off media, and especially in Big Finish, kind of go into this very black and white direction where you have, you know, the heroic female lead that is persecuted by a man who's just, you know, awful and he's the worst and, and you know, no, that's, you know, obvious. That's not how abusive relationships tend to work, you know. Like, whereas this does show you the sort of, like, English law who's kind of a... who, in some respects, is kind of nice and is kind of understanding and there is a genuine person with genuine complexity but yeah. who also acts in absolutely terrible and abusive way towards other people and i think it's important that you have this kind of complexity and acknowledge that you know all of these things are complex human interactions and aren't just a question of you know good versus evil um, you know, tellingly, a lot of the stories that really simplify sort of abusive dynamics that I've seen in Doctor Who's bit of media uh, tend to be written by by this white dudes, uh, which isn't very surprising. You know, I kind of respect the story more than I like it. Um, it's not my absolute absolute favorite, but I do respect it a lot, and I think it's really important that it gets a bit more a bit a bit more of the spotlight. Yeah, like I think a lot of people should take a listen to this too. Because also, it's, it's, it, there's no central villain. There's no big monster. Like, if anything, there's issues with time, which is quite a standard Doctor Who thing. But it just plays on all these themes. And as you say, these characters are well balanced. So nobody feels like a villain. They feel like, especially like the, the Lord, he feels like somebody who's done some bad things and doesn't fully understand his actions. But there isn't like, you don't have like a beard stroking villain or like a bunch of aliens come down at the end. And I think the story's better off for it. Yeah, definitely. And it reminds me a bit, in, um, which is not comparison to make uh, because stylistically they look very different. But it reminds me a bit of what um, Dave Stone, who's one of my favorite uh, Doctor Who writers, did in um, his Wilderness Years novel. And, you know, tonally, it's night and day, because uh, this audio is, you know, very sort of uh, elegant and quiet and calm, whereas Dave Stone is just, he writes books that are just, like, complete camp madness. Yeah. But he did write a lot about, like, very real human abuse and sort of problematic emotional dynamics um, he has this whole character. He has this whole character was called Jason Kane, um, who ended up like becoming an intergalactic porn star, but started out on Earth, 
as a you know a, a, a queer kid uh, in an abusive yeah. household, and it's that same it's it's that same kind of you know of human variating complexity that you really see on display in that story, and it's just it's just a mood of storytelling that I really miss I think from expanded universe stuff, because there's some ways that Doctor Who and television can't always articulate certain things because it does have limitations in terms of what it can show and you know in terms of the scope of the episodes but the expanded universe has a lot more room for that kind of maybe uh, a bit divergent perspectives I guess and it's a shame that in a lot of time it doesn't really take the chance it has to really push on those things because when it does generally it's really good I completely agree. And also this does something that um, Big Finish often get a lot of praise for, but I think it's worth pointing out. This is a Sixth Doctor and Mel story. Now, I love the Sixth Doctor and Mel on TV and in Big Finish, but uh, Bonnie Langford as Mel really gets some decent material to kind of get her teeth into in this, and it shows you what what a, a good companion and indeed decent actress that Bonnie Langford is. Yeah, definitely. I think it's one of the best performances um, because, you know, it does put her kind of in a very different direction than one of the characters usually pointed out. Because, you know, usually Mel's kind of, you know, fan campy character who gets to boss the Doctor around and solve computer mysteries. Even in the big Finish stuff, which uh, has been pretty good. There's a lot of Mel audios I really like. But here you kind of have a very serious, dramatic story for her, and it's a very nice change of pace to get Bonnie Langford, that kind of stuff. And I think it's actually a really interesting thing that they did his story with the Sixth Doctor, because there is a definite sort of undercurrent of the story being, in a way, about confronting some of the less savory aspects of Sixth's TV era. Because, uh, yeah. you know, he has a pretty abusive dynamic with Perry. Oh, yeah, it's absolutely horrendous. Like, you just wonder why she would stay with him, because it is just horrendous. I mean, it's, uh, the moment I always quote is that bit at the end of Twin Twin Dilemma where he goes, I'm the Doctor whether you like it or not. And that's just basically going, well, yes, I'm an abusive spouse, partner, friend, uh, and you'll just have to get used to me knocking you about. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, Big Finish has done a lot of stuff to kind of mend sort of the relationship with Perry and the Doctor. Uh, Nev Fountain is actually married to Nicola Bryant. I wrote a lot of stuff. Uh, uh, Perry and the Piscan Paradox, great one. Uh, I really like uh, Blood and Santa's Claw. Or, uh, uh, I also like The Wiz Assassin, uh, which is yeah. not uh, nearly as popular. And I know a lot of people who really hate this one, but I really like The Wiz Assassin. I think it's really good. Because obviously Big Finish wanted to get more stories with... Um, Nicola Bryant, and they had to kind of mend the relationship between the Doctor and Perry a bit, and have it go on to healthier, better basis, which is a good thing, but it's nice to see a story that doesn't necessarily go into that preparative mode, and that kind of confronts indirectly, because it does project the abusive dynamics on another character, but it does confront, if not the character of the Doctor, at least the Sixth Doctor era head-on and I think it's really refreshing and something we really need more of you know stories that are kind of willing to kind of disagree a bit with a tv show and with the text of a tv show and kind of not just you know expand on it and offer more of the same content in alternate ways 
but are willing to kind of say, I don't quite agree with that, let's maybe try and change it, and can I give my opinion on that? And I think it's, yeah. it's really interesting to have this sort of dialogue, and it's kind of a throwback to an earlier era of Doctor Who's spin-off content, because when you had uh, the Virgin New Adventures and the Eggs Doctor Adventures and the books, you very much had writers kind of writing books that were just their ideological take on Doctor Who and kind of slapping each other with those. Like like when you <laughs> read the eighth Doctor books, like you get the feeling that, you know, Lawrence Miles is writing a whole thesis about what Doctor Who should be, and then Paul Mars is going, Well actually, I don't agree with that and then you have Kate Orman comes afterwards saying if I may add one or two things to that and it just keeps going <laughs> and it's it's really interesting as a reader because you know I guess there are some frustrating aspects to that but it's also really engaging to see like you know so many IEDs and so much debate between different writers and it's something that we kind of have lost and I feel like audios like this one really kind of get back to that kind of spirit of you know healthy confrontation with the show's maybe most problematic aspects or where the show could improve and it's just fascinating i absolutely agree i absolutely agree and i think that's the perfect note to end this particular podcast on um so sam thanks very much for coming on and if the listeners want to find you on the internet where can they find you uh so i'm on twitter at uh, at looking for telos like the doctor who planet and the philosophy concept my blog uh, both both the downtime blog and uh, my personal uh, writer's site are both linked in my uh, in my Twitter profile so you can find them there and uh, same thing uh, the book is also linked on there so basically just go to my Twitter <laughs> fantastic okay great well Sam thanks so much for coming on and it was really great to get your insight on these like hidden gems within the big finished range um so yeah thanks and we'll have to get you back again to talk about something equally as exciting uh it would be with pleasure